Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Morning, everybody. How you doing? Good. It's nice to get up here, turn around, and see your faces and smile at you. So glad you're here. So many of you here, even with some gone to a women's retreat this weekend. Uh we're in the middle of a five-week series on the Psalms. Are you guys, if you're liking it, wave at me if you're enjoying it. Yeah, I thought so. Me too. Um, Kathy, as you know, is very passionate about this series. She's brought a lot of passion to it and been geeking out or nerding out on it. I have as well. And so I've been waiting until week four to get my chance, and I'm so pumped up. So I've got like maybe two hours worth of material for you this morning. Um, I figured you like it as much as me. You just want to listen to me talk all morning and into the afternoon. Maybe we'll go like Paul till midnight till somebody falls out of a window. No? Okay. I'll try to keep it to the normal amount of time, but I am excited uh, about the Psalms. It's a really cool book, isn't it? It's really unique in the Bible. You know, there's not a lot of other books like it. Um, And it's kind of cool to get to know the different books. There's letters in the New Testament. The Gospels we talked about at the beginning of this year. You know, there's history, there's um, the first five, the Moses stuff, man. Oh, it's all so good, and it's all so different. The prophets of the Old Testament. So um, what have we seen so far about the Psalms? Well, they're like songs, they're poetry, they're prayers. And so they sort of give you this artistic way to express yourself. That's why we've called it a playlist for life, the sermon series, right? Because you can pick from these Psalms, Prayers, songs, poems that can help you express how you feel in whatever season of life you're in. They're still so applicable today. And uh, they were used in that way back in the time that they were written and collected and put together. So there's a long history of using these prayers um, to come to God with whatever you're going through. Um, We've covered three types or genres so far already, right? Wisdom thanks slash remembrance, and lament, one, two, three. And then today we're going to talk about royal psalms. But first, I want to start with a story. This isn't a photo from the actual story itself, but this does a pretty good job of approximating a men's retreat a couple of years ago. Anybody who is there and knows what I'm talking about already, wave at me. The duct tape and cardboard boat. I've got one there. Okay, here's what happened, guys. Um, men's retreat is really fun. We have a blast. We eat steak. We go to Bear Lake Bible Camp. They do a great job putting it on for us. Uh, But one thing they do each men's retreat weekend is called the ultimate challenge. And so you get a team of people. We had maybe, I don't know, 10 people or so from New Day. And like you do little mini games to earn money to then buy supplies to build, in this case, a duct tape and cardboard boat. And then the idea was all the teams bring their boats down. They pick someone to put in the boat out on the lake. And whoever stays afloat the longest wins the competition. Well, the thing is, this year, like many men's retreat years, it was rainy and cold and windy. I mean, it's like my least, I always say my least favorite temperature, especially when I was running trails a lot, is like 35 and rainy. Because it's not cold enough to turn to snow, which is pretty, but you're, you're wet cold it was like that and we put our buddy Shelton into our boat and we had gotten a lot of duct tape from the, the store to build this thing so it stayed afloat a long time and so did another team's boat and our boat with Shelton poor Shelton in it he was like this guy he didn't have a paddle he didn't have an anchor and so he starts drifting <laughs> from the dock and I mean like we look over and he's like a football field away in this marshy side of the lake. (laughs) And the organizers from the camp, you can just tell, they were like, we had no idea it was going to last this long. What is going on here? Somebody's going to drown. We didn't put life jackets on them. And so they hop in a kayak, and they go, and they pull Shelton back, and they declared it a draw because our boat and the other one just didn't sink. Moral of the story, duct tape is awesome if you need to build a boat. Also, moral of the story that applies to today is life can get stormy. You know, winds, rain, stuff comes your way in life. And if you don't have an anchor, you'll just get blown away. And your friends will be like, wait, what happened? I imagine that's what it sounded like to Shelton as he drifted away. I don't know. 
Um, but we need an anchor for life. And today when we talk about the royal psalms, I want you to think of them in that way. These psalms provide a serious anchor for the Christian life, you guys. And I want to talk about what that means in more detail as we go through. But first, let's talk about what royal psalms are, okay? So you can think of these as psalms that are about the human kings, right? Saul was the first king in the Old Testament, then David, then Solomon. Then there's a divided kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. They each have kings, and you can read about them in the books of Kings and Chronicles and so on. So sometimes royal psalms are talking about those guys in some way. Sometimes, like Psalm 72 that we're going to look at in more detail this morning, they talk about like the nature of kingly rule or how kings should rule. Um, Psalm 72 that we'll look at actually is a prayer for the king to rule well. Um, But then, man, this is one of the big anchors here, is that the royal psalms often talk about the reign of God as king. He's the the king of the universe, the cosmic king over it all, right? That is an anchor for life. Okay, we've been showing these cool pictures. This is from my nerdy Bible app, you guys. It's called Logos. Um, It's super cool, and I sort of stumbled maybe about a month ago onto something called the Psalms Explorer in my app, and when you click on it, you get these bubbles that appear, and it's each circle. Is it hard to see? Can you see it okay? I can see it. Great. Anyways, you get these bubbles with a number in it. The number is the chapter of the psalm, and then they organize the bubbles into categories, right? So in the lower right of this slide is the Royal Psalms category. They're in orange, and they're kind of lit up a little brighter. Um, It's kind of a smaller category, like Thanksgiving. You can see in blue, there's tons of laments. In red, Pastor Cameron next week will talk about Psalms of Praise. There's tons of those. Um, And so this is one way to sort of look at the Psalms and see what they are. Um, But if you... If you marry yourself to any of these, like, categories, you're going to be super disappointed because there's so much, like, overlap. The lines are super blurry. People who categorize psalms don't even agree about how many categories there are. So don't get hung up on that. Just a word word to the wise. Don't get too hung up on it. And um, so the royal psalms are sometimes used for, like, special occasions within the life of the nation and the community. So, like, when a new king's being... uh, coronated on coronation day it's coron coronation day <laughs> it's like a disney thing stuck in my head here jill gets it <laughs> it's coronation day <laughs> golly <laughs> i'm gonna take a drink and try to catch back i'm not gonna sing the song jill yeah yeah it's good it's a very good thing <laughs> so on coronation day there's a song for that Um, when the king gets married, there's a psalm for that. When the king's going to go into battle and wants to pray for success to God, there's a psalm for that. When the king wins a battle and he's really happy and wants to thank God, there's a psalm for that. Sounds like that old thing. There's an app for that for some reason. I didn't mean to do that. So these are all royal psalms in some sense, right? The king's going to battle. He's getting married. He's getting um, enthroned um, in the coronation ceremony. Um, There's sort of a thing, again, don't get married to this either, but um, in the first, remember how Psalms has five books? Remember that? Kathy talked about that a couple of weeks ago. It's organized into book one, two, three, four, and five, and you'll see those headings in your Bible. Um, The first three books tend to have more royal Psalms that are about human kingship. But then in books four and five, you get more of God's kingship shows up. So there's a little bit of a trajectory there. Again, don't get married to that. But another way to look at this picture that's on the slide for you, instead of just thinking about the royal psalms or this little category, there's some royal themes that are sprinkled all throughout. Like the power... Did I go the wrong way? I don't know what I did there. Like... There we go. (laughs) Like the power of God. So see how the power of God psalms are lit up and they're coming from every category. The power of God is a theme throughout psalms. Or if you do the sovereignty of God, my cool little app, you get different ones that light up, and there's a ton of overlap. But the point that God's powerful. He's sovereign. He's a king. That's what we're getting at. Okay, so moving forward. Today, three things for you. Three things. The royal psalms portray God as king of kings, lord of lords, and just judge. That's number one. Number two, we're going to talk about how kings should rule from Psalm 72. 
And number three, they paint a portrait of the Messiah. That word means anointed one. It's a title that is then applied to Jesus, but Psalms are written before Jesus. It means like the king was the anointed one, the one anointed to be king. Like you'll see sometimes a prophet in the Old Testament put oil on a man and say, you're going to be the king of the nation now, right? He's literally anointed. But then that becomes a title, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David who was to come. And so the Psalms help paint that Old Testament portrait, which is a prophecy that points to Jesus is super cool, and we're going to geek out on that a little bit. But these things provide anchors for hope in the world that we live in and to praise God. All right, that's where we're going. Three things. First thing, King of kings, Lord of lords, and judge of all the earth. Okay, so there's this really cool thing. Remember, I think this might be book four. I'm not sure. But anyways, Psalms 93 through 99 are like this clump of royal psalms. If you go look, not all of them are categorized that way, but I categorize them that way. And my category is what matters because I have the lapel microphone this morning. Okay, Psalm 93 through 99, Royal Psalms. These are super cool. And so what I want to do is sort of name the psalm, paint an overview of what it's like, and read you a couple of verses of each, right? So you can see how God's portrayed as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and Judge of all the earth. But first, okay, judge. What do you think of when you think of judge? Robe, gavel, order in the court. That was kind of fun. It'd be more fun with a real gavel. Order in the court. Bailiff, restrain this man. <laughs> That'd be really fun. Nobody's coming at him, don't worry. <laughs> That's what my mind thinks of when I hear the word judge. I don't know about you. But biblically, in the Old Testament, judge is something a little different than that. So we got to sort of get our minds in the right place before we go into Psalms 93 through 99. When you think of judge, instead think of deliverers, rescuers, okay? Think of Gideon. The people are being oppressed under the nation of Midian, so much so that he's hiding in a wine press. He's gone into a hole to do something you're supposed to do out in the open, thresh wheat, Okay? That's how bad it is. The Midian, he's worried the Midianites are going to take even his little bushel of wheat from him. But God raises him up to do what? To rescue the people from Midian. So judges are rescuers. Samson, Deborah, these people are in the book of Judges in your Old Testament. And their function is to deliver and rescue the people from being oppressed, from evil. And so God as judge means that he rescues. He brings deliverance. He establishes justice and equity in the nation, in the world, ultimately in the universe. Does that help? We took off the robe, we set aside the gavel, as much fun as it is, and that's what we're going to think about when we read judge, the word judge, in the Psalms here. Sound good? Are you sure? Does it sound good? Okay, good. Aliyah's nodding yes. Thank you, Aliyah. Psalm 93 talks about the Lord is king from the beginning, and his rule stands forever. Here's a little snippet. The Lord reigns. He's robed in majesty. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. The Lord is king. His rule stands forever. It's from all time and to all time. Super cool. Psalm 94 is about, it's actually a lament, asking God to rise up, and bring justice. Be a judge. Rise up, judge of the earth. Pay back to the proud what they deserve. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? That's a lament right there, if I ever heard one. Judgment will again be founded on righteousness. Right? Remember how laments turn to trust and praise and hope in God to do what he's asking them to do. So this is saying, hey, I need a, I need a rescuer, a deliverer, somebody to free me from the wicked that are oppressing me right now. God, would you come and do that? Psalm 95 is about the greatness of God, his position above all the gods of the nations around them. And it's really personal. He's our God in this chapter, and he's a caring shepherd. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. That one's sweet, isn't it? 
The King of Kings is our shepherd, and he cares for us. That's a good one. They're all good ones, but that's a good one. Psalm 96 is about how the Lord is great and praiseworthy. It says to give praise to God along with all creation. And it says he will bring justice to the world. Sounds a little like this. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He's to be feared above all gods. All the gods of the nations are idle. I'll just pausing in case anybody like thought of the worship song and wanted to sing out. Every other god is an idol. Can I sing? Can I? Okay, we'll keep moving. Uh, but the Lord made the <laughs> but the Lord made the heavens. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established; it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So good. Psalm ninety-seven. Are you enjoying this? These are good, aren't they? They're clumped all together to like repeat. Right? And so that's why I'm repeating them for you today to show the emphasis of who God is as king. 97, the Lord's reign brings gladness, justice, and righteousness. He's exalted above all gods. Once again, he protects and rescues his faithful people. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, Lord. For you, Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Now, that's an older worship song. Those of you who are my age remember that one too. Okay. He guards the life of his faithful ones and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Delivers them from the hand of the wicked. That's so good, right? That's calling out for the judge to rescue right there. Psalm 98, two left in this clump. Psalm 98, the Lord is king and judge. Shout for joy to him. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns in holiness and in might. He's forgiving and just at the same time. This is a good one too. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is right, what is just and right. Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. I love that one. This is off notes, so I won't go for too long on it, but like, Man, that's Exodus 34. The God who's gracious and compassionate, but does not let sin go unpunished. God somehow perfectly balances true, good, right justice with compassion and forgiveness. I love what you shared about communion, Adam, and it really hits on this theme, doesn't it? When we come before the Lord, he's perfectly holy and we are not. But he provided a way through Jesus to make us clean, pure, holy, and able to enter his presence right? And so he doesn't give up justice. He wouldn't be good if he did. That's not a God I want to worship, one who's not just, who lets evil go unpunished. That's horrible. That's evil in itself. But at the same time, he doesn't give us what we deserve, but he provided a way for us to be forgiven. That's so loving and kind. That's the God that we serve. Okay. I think I have a quote for you next. Okay, yeah. God is extolled in the Psalms as the king of the universe. His kingship has been and will be for all time. What an anchor for life, you guys, these Psalms are. The Lord reigns as king over all creation, over all the universe, for all of history. He has both the power and the goodness to judge rightly. We can trust in him as the just one, the judge, the deliverer. So what does this mean for us today? Well, when you're wronged, when evil comes knocking at your door and hurts you, call out to God, the just judge. Ask him to deliver you. He is able to do so, and he will, whether it's soon in our timing or in his perfect timing, or ultimately when Jesus returns, he will bring justice when you're wronged. When you face difficulty, If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, you can look to God, the king of the universe, for help. 
holy cow, right? Think about that. Sometimes we don't, but it's so true. When you pray, you have a direct line. You can pick up, my cell phone's over there. You can pick up the phone. I almost did it like off of the, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> you can pull it out of your pocket. <laughs> it's like this now. And you have a direct line to heaven, to the king of the universe, to say, God, help me. I'm in trouble. I need you. This isn't fair. I have a lament, but I trust in you, so I'm coming to you in prayer. Isn't that cool? That is an awesome anchor for life. Okay, little side point within this one. <clears throat> I can't help myself, but go on little tangents sometimes, okay? Because tangents are mathematical. I was an engineer, right? It's the whole thing. Some, some, <laughs> some psalms celebrate God's kingship by liturgically reenacting his enthronement. What does that mean? Something cool. So remember, psalms are sometimes for occasions, right? So I don't know if this is true or this is sort of like one of those scholarly like ideas of how it could have played out, you know, scholarly speculation or whatever. But imagine the people... God's people, the nation of Israel or Judah or whatever, they're coming to Jerusalem once a year and they're using the Psalms to re-enthrone God as king, right? Let's have a coronation ceremony once a year for God, not because he ever lost his throne, but to remind us that he's king, to worship him as king in a regular frequency year after year. That's what this is saying. Liturgical means like for like a ceremony, a religious ceremony, a liturgy, right? Like we had communion today and we do once a month. Imagine once a year using a psalm to do a coronation ceremony for God. That's kind of a cool thing to think about. And it reminds me of two weeks ago when Marilee talked to us about the psalms of remembrance and thanks, right? She stressed, and the Bible stresses, the importance of remembering who God is and what he's done. And so in this context, we want to remember that God is king, right? Put your anchor down. Don't drift away. Remember, God is king of the universe. He's enthroned as king. He's our king, our God, our shepherd, and he's all-powerful. And so communion, when Jesus instituted a liturgy called communion, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so now, in our day and age, once a month for us, we come together as one, and we do a coronation of our king. We put him back on his throne, the cross, and remember what he did for us in dying, being buried, and rising again. We remember that he sits on a throne at the right hand of God right now, that he'll return to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. I think that's how that Nicene Creed goes at that point. Um, but he'll return right? And fully establish the kingdom that we hope for. Sin and death will be totally uh, done. Wickedness will be wiped away. All tears and mourning and sadness will go and the fullness will come. And so month after month, we remember Jesus, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's so good to do. And we need that regular remembrance as an anchor for life. Okay. <clears throat> this is all in category one still, right? <laughs> You're like, um, let's see. Okay, if God is king, this is a really important question. You're probably asking it. And if you're not already, you, you are at other times in your life. If God is the king, all-powerful and just, why does the world look so evil sometimes? That's a really good question. And um, <clears throat> so um, a guy who writes books and does a podcast that I like, Sky Jitani, talks about this. And he actually says, yeah, the Psalms wrestle with this very question, right? We lament a world gone wrong. We praise a God who's all-powerful, and we ask him to enter in when we don't see him acting. That's what the Psalms do. And so Sky says, hey, this clump of Psalms that we just looked at this morning, 93 through 99, he says 96 through 99, but I'll say 93 through 99, they're actually composed to offer an answer to this question, Right? Yeah, we don't see it right now. It looks like the world around us is unjust, but there is a just judge who will come. He will set it right. And so we wait in hope for the day that he does. We trust that he will. Um, or in Sky's words, the Psalms foreshadow a day of judgment when he will vindicate the innocent and vanquish the wicked. 
What's wrong will be undone. What's right will be established. It will last forever. And that's what we hope for as Christians. That's what our hope is in when we see evil all around us and it seems unfair. When you lose a loved one, when you get sick, you know, the stuff that happens that shakes your faith up. We need an anchor for life, and this is it. And our hope is not in our powerful U.S. military. Our hope is not in our politics. Our hope is not in a social system to fix what is wrong. Man, I hope we get good social systems in our country. I hope they continue to improve and things get better in the country that we live in. I'll pray for that. But my hope is not in that. My hope is in Jesus, in his return, in his system, his kingdom to rule and reign forever and establish true justice on the earth. Okay, so the kingship of God is an anchor. This is a key to turn laments into hopeful praise. It's a key for us to remain faithful in hard times, to not give up, to not quit, to not become disillusioned. Okay, let's move on to number two. I think it's time for number two. Number two, royal psalms talk about how kings should rule, specifically in Psalm 72. I think this is super cool and has some good application for our lives today, so I want to check it out with you this morning. Let's read a little bit of 72 here. Um, Oh, let's back up. Before you start reading that on the slide, (laughs) and I lose your focus, Psalm 72 is like a prayer for the king, okay? So like, maybe it'd be like us praying for our president, okay? It's the, the prayer for the king of Israel. It's saying what um, we're asking God for him to be like, and then it's sort of praying in faith that he will be like that, okay? Hopefully that'll help make the verses I read make more sense. God, may he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. He will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Excuse me. Okay, so uh, what does Sky say? Psalm 72's message is clear. Righteous rulers, like the ones being prayed for in that psalm, are those who wield their power like God does for the benefit of others, right? Um, Kings who rule as God says they should protect the poor. They punish oppressors, those who do evil. In other words, bring justice. They pity and care for the weak and the needy. They bring an end to violence. That's their role in the world with what they've been given. Their authority and their power is to uphold the justice of God. That makes sense? That's what God wants them to do. Okay, um, so let's apply that to our lives first, okay? Rule like God in your areas of authority. You might be thinking to yourself, self, you might be thinking, Bill, What area of authority are you talking about? I'm in middle school, or (laughs) I'm a college student, or, you know, what what do I have? I bet if we think hard enough, each and every one of us have an area of authority, an area that we rule over, rightly so, not in a bad way. You know, if you're a parent, right, you establish a household for your children. You lead, guide, and rule over your children for their good, right? And so Psalm 72 says, Do so like this, you know, take pity on someone who's weak or needy, lift them up, help them. Don't stand for evil, but stand for what is right. Maybe you're a school teacher, your classroom, you rule in, not to pick on you, Adam, but you're right there in the front row, you know, even in a group of friends, right? Maybe you're a a bit of a leader. People look to you for guidance or support or whatever. You have areas of authority in your life and God is calling you to rule as he does in goodness, in justice, caring for those who can't care for themselves, right? Watching out for them, defending them. Maybe if you're in school, like a middle school or high school, that means like standing up to a bully, protecting those who are weak and being bullied, right? There's a lot of ways we can apply this. 
Um, so be creative and do so. Okay, you've probably already read the other bullet on here, but I want to encourage you to cast your votes in this American democracy we live in in light of Psalm 72, okay? Do the best you can, and this is no easy task, to put your votes toward electing people who rule in line with the character of God. Like I said, it's not an easy task, but that's the ideal. That's the goal. When a Christian goes to the voting booth, or in this day and age, if you're like me, they send it to you, which is awesome. <laughs> do they even send the little sticker, I voted? I think they do. You can put it on your shirt and not even have to leave the comfort of your home. So convenient. Okay. How did we get on that? Jerry, how did we get on that? Okay. Um, <laughs> vote with Psalm 72 in mind is my point. When you give political energy and support in our country, which is great to do. Bring your Christianity to it. You don't have to put it aside. Separation of church and state doesn't mean you have to stop being a Christian when you get involved in, in the world you live in. Bring your Christianity to it. Bring the ideals and the way of the Lord to it, who cares for the weak and the needy, right? Who stands against violence and things that are wrong, who's full of compassion and grace, and love, and is just. Both and. Man, it'd be awesome to live in a country that fulfilled that. Okay, let's move on to number three. Three, the royal psalms paint a portrait of the Messiah. This is so good. This is where we're going to talk for about two more hours. This is so exciting. This is super good. This is Jesus in the psalms. Okay, check out this. Even as early as chapter two, the Psalms introduce a way of reading the whole book of Psalms as a book about God's Messiah. That's a claim. Some people disagree with it. I totally agree with it, and we're going to support it as we move on. But think about this. David and his descendants create a category in Scripture. The anointed one, the anointed king, the righteous king, right? It becomes known as the son of David. A category is created when Israel gets a king. And Saul, right at the beginning, man, right, sets up how these kings are going to fail. They are not going to fulfill godly rule as king. And then David is so great, right? A man after God's own heart. And then he walks around on the roof, <laughs> right? He fails too. Solomon's great, the wisest man who ever lived. But those foreign wives and concubines are his downfall. He doesn't fulfill it. A category is created in the earthly kings of the kingdom of God, and they fail to fulfill it. So a void is there, a vacuum, a black hole around this concept of God's anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means, anointed one. It's like a, I believe it's the Hebrew word. When you read anointed one in the Old Testament, that's the word you're reading. Um, and so in that void, in that vacuum, in that black hole around this category, um, starts to turn to hope, right? If you follow the history, Israel divides into two kingdoms. One of them goes into captivity in Assyria, the other into captivity in Babylon. Eventually there's a return to Jerusalem, but they're still under foreign rule. And so they go, well, what happened to the promise to David? of a king to sit on the throne and a kingdom that will last forever. What happened? And they start to go, well, maybe that created a category that points to something else. Maybe it wasn't exactly what we thought it was, right? And so people for 400 years between the end of our Old Testament and the birth of Jesus, history happens. People go, oh, maybe this is it. Oh, maybe this is it, you know? And they create this hope, this expectation. What is the son of David going to look like? And then Jesus has all these debates with the Pharisees about what it actually looks like. Okay, so David and his descendants create a category. It creates a void, but then it creates a hope for the Messiah who is to come, the son of David. When's he going to show up? What's he going to look like? Boy, I can't wait till it happens. Imagine being under Roman rule and going, man, I would like him to show up. I'm sick of carrying their junk for a mile, you know? <laughs> I'm sick of those soldiers being around here. Okay, so let's look now at the life of Jesus. He arrives on the scene, and things in his life start fulfilling stuff we read in the Psalms. Not just the Royal Psalms, but all over. Let's look at a smattering of those for a moment. 
um, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, what do they say? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, direct quote. Um, when Judas betrays him, it fulfills this. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, the one who I shared my bread, has turned against me. I think there was a typo in there. That grammar felt a little off, even for an engineer. Moving on. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and the Roman soldiers are uh, casting lots for his clothes. Which seems like such a weird thing to do. It's fulfillment of Psalm 22. They give him vinegar to drink while he's hanging there. Psalm 69. He says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was speaking a psalm. At the end, when it's finished, he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Psalm 31. Remember when they come back and it's like, hey, get those bodies off of, off of the crosses. And what they do is like, if you're not dead yet, they break your legs so you'll die faster. Um, but they stab Jesus with a spear because he looks like he's already dead. Sure enough, he is. Water and blood. They've already separated. That guy was dead. But what happens then is Jesus doesn't have a single bone broken in his death, although he's beaten to a bloody pulp and hung on a cross. None of his bones are broken. Psalm 34. Um, and then what happens? Jesus is buried in a tomb, but on the third day, he rises again. His body didn't decay in a tomb. He rose again in body. That's Psalm 16. And the New Testament authors reference that one quite a bit, I'll tell you what. Um, another psalm that gets referenced a lot in the New Testament is 110. Believe me, I had like 50 pages of notes about this topic. We're not going to go into Psalm 110, but we could, and it's super cool. Check it out for yourself. Peter references it in his uh, Day of Pentecost message. Hebrews geeks out on Psalm 110 big time, and Jesus references it himself. But alas, we do not have time for that today. Instead, what we're going to do with the rest of our time is look at Psalm 2. It's one of the royal psalms. I want to read it to you and geek out on that one just a little bit more today. Geekiness is at an all-time high today, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So make sure your glasses are taped real good right in the center. Push them up. And uh, let's check out Psalm 2. 12 verses, guys. It's 12 verses. I think it's four slides. Stay with me. Why do the nations conspire? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. <laughs> the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. That's my one enthroned in heaven Pretty good. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. Or another translation says you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Some churches say that after they read the scripture for the day. It's kind of cool. Okay. So, what I want to propose to you is that Psalm 2, which we just read, works together with Psalm 1 as a unified introduction to the entire collection of psalms. Okay, remember Kathy talked about five books of psalms. It was collected, maybe Ezra and his buddies, after coming back from exile, start gathering these as a work, and they order them, and they divide them, and it's very intentional, right? Well, Psalm 1 and 2 work together to introduce that collection to us and to the people of that day, okay? Some of the evidence for this is like Psalms 3 through 9, have a title on them that says an author, right, of David, a psalm or whatever. Psalm 1 and 2 both don't. Interesting. The very beginning, Psalm 1 verse 1 says, blessed is he who, or blessed is the one who. The end of Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in the Lord. Blessed, blessed. That 
that's a biblical way of saying, hey, this is a chunk. Look at this as a chunk of stuff, okay? Um, so they together they create this integrated introduction to the Psalms, and they create a message that says, those who delight in the Lord will be blessed, both commoners and kings who delight in the way of the Lord will be blessed, okay? And this is what the good life looks like according to God. And it contrasts it with the way of the wicked that leads to destruction. Okay, so what do I mean? Remember Psalm 1? We actually sang the tree song that Carrie wrote based a lot on Psalm 1 and some stuff from Revelations in her song too. Super cool. Um, But what does it say? The one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on his law is like a tree planted by streams of water. Okay, so the good life stands firm. It's rooted. It's well watered. It's healthy. It, it's fruitful, even in drought, because there's a stream, man. It's got roots by the stream. This is a prosperous life, or in the words of John 10.10, 10, full, abundant life. That's what it looks like. And it's contrasted with what? The one who walks in step with the wicked, who stands in the way that sinners take, that sits in the company of mockers or scoffers. What are those people like? They're like chaff an empty shell of a person. There's no substance. There's no root. They will not stand like a tree, but they'll be blown away by the wind. Or in the words of Psalm 2, they'll be broken to pieces like pottery. And in both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, this way, the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And so it calls us, don't live that way. Live the good way. Delight in the Lord and be a tree, man. That sounds pretty good. In terms of tree life, planted by streams of water, bearing fruit, leaves that don't wither, that's as good as it gets, right? In terms of trees, I'd probably be a nutty tree, as you can imagine. We have a hickory tree in our yard. It's dropping all the hickory nuts right now. They're everywhere. They pop under our car tires when we pull in the parking lot. But anyways, I was just thinking, those trees are nuts, and that's the kind of tree I'd be. That's an aside. (laughs) Um, So another way to put it from one of the books that I was reading about, Psalms 1 and 2 both show that a way to security and blessing is through submission to the rule of God as king. Okay, more geeky evidence of how Psalms 1 and 2 work together. Blessed, beginning of number 1, end of number 2. Scoff, remember? Don't sit with the scoffers in Psalm 1. And in two, when it says the nations plot in vain, it's the same word. They're scoffing against God. Scoff and scoff. Don't be with the scoffers. The nations scoff. Um, Oh, no. I I got that one wrong. I'm sorry. (laughs) I mashed together two. Okay, the scoffing is uh, don't sit with the scoffers, and the Lord scoffs at those who stand against him. That's what I meant to say. So rewind. Fill it in right. The meditation and the nations plotting, that's a link. Meditate on his law day and night in Psalm 1. And then what do the nations do? They plot. They med- it means meditate. They meditate on their plans against God. So there's a contrast there. And then like we said, there's destruction. The way of the wicked leads to destruction at the end of Psalm 1 and the end of Psalm 2. So they're linked. All that to say, they're linked. Inextricably linked, I think is the word. <laughs> okay. Psalm 2 does some super cool activation of biblical themes. I just pulled out two to show you. It's got tons of words about nations, kings, and rulers. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 8, verse 10. It's all over. There's only 12 verses. Like half of them or more are talking about nations, kings, and rulers. Think about things that are being activated in the Bible with those words. Like, hey, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a nation. You'll be a blessing to the nations. Right? It's just activating this super cool theme. And a contrast, again, between the nation that God establishes and the nations um, that surround his people, the, other, the nations of the world who worship false gods. What about the begotten son? Anybody know John 3.16? God's only begotten son. It's here. Verse 7 says, um, you are my son, today I've become your father. But another way to translate that is, today I have begotten you. Super cool, right? And then the nerdery continues. Remember chiasm? It's when things are symmetric and build toward this point in the middle. Well, Psalm 2 does this, but it also does something else because it's layered, and those Hebrew guys like to layer their techniques and things. 
So what we have is an ABAB pattern at the beginning and end of Psalm 2, and then the chiasm going to the middle. So if you sort of like sum up the verses and give them a heading, this is what it looks like here on the slide. In verse 1, the nations rage. Verse 2 and 3, the nations disobey or stand against God. At the end, in verses 10, the nations learn what they should do. And you're kind of like, will they obey? They're encouraged to, to take refuge in him, to kiss the sun. Will they obey? So it's A, B, A, B, beginning and end. And then in the middle, God judges the nations. The sun judges the nations. It's the king installed on the throne by God. And in the middle is that actual enthronement. God installs his king on Zion, his holy mountain. And the king is the begotten son. So that's what's in the middle. That's what's being emphasized. Hello, picture of the Messiah, right? Okay, in addition to that center point picture of the Messiah, I want to look at verses 8 and 9 together. Briefly, it says, I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them uh, with a rod of iron, or it's uh, another translation, you will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. This, these few sentences are all over scripture. It's part of the portrait of Messiah that's being painted. So rewind to Genesis 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah. That's a man who becomes a tribe within the nation. The scepter will not depart from this tribe. The ruler's staff from between his feet. Oh, maybe it's talking about a person, the Messiah. Until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Holy cow. We're way back uh, with the sons of Jacob, right? Judah. And this is starting to paint a portrait of the Messiah who is to come before there's even a king. This is before they're even delivered from Egypt. Okay, what about Daniel 2? King Nebuchadnezzar, a foreign king, has a dream. Daniel interprets it for him. First, he has to tell him what the dream is because Nebuchadnezzar is difficult. He's a, like a king diva or something. And, uh, but he does. They, uh, Daniel prays. God tells him what the dream was, gives him the interpretation, and he interprets it. He goes, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, your dream was of kingdoms of gold, silver, bronze, and then iron and clay down there, right? And then a rock not cut by human hands. A rock from heaven comes and smashes the clay and iron kingdom that is in the feet and brings an end to all of these kingdoms. And it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth and endures forever. Okay, wait. A rock from heaven that breaks to pieces like pottery? The clay? Oh, and then what happens to the pieces? It literally says they become like chaff. Hello, Psalm 1. And the wind blows them away. Hello, Psalm 1. So the dream God gives Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel interprets and records for us, it's exactly what we saw in Psalm 1 and 2. A rock from heaven. Huh. And this is, this is one of the verses in Daniel uh, chapter 2. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will itself endure forever. Okay, portrait of Messiah. A rock from heaven who will come, break to pieces earthly kingdoms, and establish a kingdom that will last forever. That sounds like the promise to David. Okay, wow, what a portrait being painted. What does Jesus say? Okay, people are rejecting him. Pharisees don't like Jesus a whole lot. And he's like, guys, haven't you ever read the scriptures? They say the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done it, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you read that? And then Jesus goes on to say, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Hello, Daniel 2. Hello, Psalm 1 and 2. Jesus is saying, excuse me, <laughs> he's saying, I'm that guy. Right? You're rejecting me, but that's exactly what was prophesied. That you're going to reject me, but I'm going to crush your religious system. I'm going to crush the nations. I'm going to establish what God really wants, an eternal kingdom. I'm here to do it. I fulfill it. And then the apostle John in his revelation sees the fulfillment to come of Jesus' return when he does that. It says, John says, uh, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus when he returns. With justice, he judges and wages war. And then it literally quotes Psalm 2. He will rule them with an iron scepter. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Did I paint the picture for you this morning that's in Scripture? Of Messiah, of Jesus, what, he, what was promised of him, the hope that he then fulfills, 
And then how we have a hope for his return when he comes back and brings that final justice, when he brings that fulfillment of the kingdom that we just we have a taste of and a part of now, but we're still surrounded by evil and wicked ways happening in the world. But in God's compassion, he waits to give people a chance to repent until the time's fulfilled. So Psalms 1 and 2 work together. That's a really long, nerdy way of saying it. Psalms 1 and 2 work together to introduce the Psalms, and they help paint this portrait of Jesus who is to come. So we're back to being like Shelton in a duct tape boat, afloat through life, guys. But we need an anchor so we don't get blown away to the far side of the lake. And um, the royal psalms are such an awesome anchor for life. God is king of kings, Lord of lords, a just judge, one who delivers, brings justice. We can appeal to him. We can lament to him. He's given us direction for how to rule as kings and queens in the areas where we have authority. And he's made this picture in scripture, the just bright flashing lights that say, Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's coming. He has come. He will come again. These are anchors for hope and praise. Adam, would you come and wrap it up this morning? All right. Thank you, Pastor Bill. That was so good. I love uh, just seeing how the Bible is all connected. Sometimes when you are just going through the Bible and just reading parts at a time over the course of a long period of time we don't we don't see all the connections so it's so cool to see um the repetition and and the the thought that went into putting it all together very good stuff so i love the imagery in today's sermon the the anchor uh in in times uh the like we might feel like life is chaotic we're floating away on that boat i like the the imagery of the tree uh and the roots that grow deep both are, are different ways of saying that um there's a way to find uh, a foundation right whether that be anchor anchor roots uh when life is crazy and um it seems like everybody i talk to is is overwhelmed everybody i talk to is stressed out everybody i talk to is busy individually we feel like my life is crazy nobody else understands but that's actually how everybody feels um so we need we need this anchor in our life we need to be trees planted deep so father God, we just thank you for this word today. Lord, help us to receive this. Lord, I pray right now that we would choose to let you be our anchor to hope. Father, I pray that you'd be our anchor to life. Lord, and we would not get carried away with the, the busyness and the stresses of life, but that we would, we would recognize that you are our anchor. We thank you that we can be a tree, fruitful in every season, fruitful in the craziness. Let our roots grow deep in you, Father. Thank you that you reign. You are in control. We worship you. You are our king. We are so thankful for you. In Jesus' name, amen.